We are about to begin a new series that I'm very much excited for. Um, so rather than reading anything first, we're going to go ahead and we're going to begin with prayer. Please join me. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the beauty of it and the, the deep cuts that it makes in our lives. We thank you for the wisdom in it, the life that we learn from it. And so in this time, God, teach us. Hide me, get rid of me, decrease me, increase Jesus. And we just ask that he would be lifted high in this time, that we would know him better, and that we would be emboldened and impassioned to live for him and to make him known. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're going to be in 1 Peter 1. Seems like a logical place to start, right? New series. Let's start in the first verse of the first chapter. And we're just going to look at the first two verses in, in this introduction to the series. And the point I want to make here, just as a, a reminder, a continuing lesson for all of us, if you're reading in the Bible, your Bible might have sections, and it might describe these first two verses as the greeting. And there's a temptation sometimes, I think, on our part to skip through or to not spend as much time on these introductory verses because we want to get to the meat of the letter, right? And we're like, oh, well, it's, it's just the greeting. Let me, let me get to the really heavy stuff. But what we're going to see when we take the time to just dive into two verses is there is so much packed in to every millimeter of Scripture. And so don't gloss over the introductions to these letters, but this is 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. And the first thing that we see for those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, why is that important? Why did Peter include this detail prompted by the Holy Spirit in this letter? Why do we today in 2022 need to know what he means when he says to the elect exiles of the dispersion, this big event dispersion? Well, it tells us when this letter was written. And the context of that takes the elements of this letter so deep, as you'll see as we study. But this letter was written right around 64, 65 A.D. What happened in 64, 65 A.D.? Nero burned Rome. Nero was the emperor of Rome. He was addicted to building. He was addicted to demonstrating his power and his greatness by constantly constructing. But Rome was at a place where they were really pushing the, the capacity of their physical limitations of the city. This wasn't good enough for Nero. He wanted to build more. He wanted to build nicer. He wanted to build newer. So Nero burns down large, large chunks of Rome. And just in case any of you ever wind up as an emperor of an entire people one day, Here's a little pro tip. The people you're emperor of are not going to be fans of this. And Rome was not a fan of this. Because he's burning down their homes, he's burning down the markets where they work, where their livelihood is made, and he burned down temples as part of this. Temples to their gods. And they believed their gods were physically within that place. Like that was where their god dwelt. 
in that physical building. And so an attack on a temple was an attack on their gods. And so the Roman citizens are livid over this. And the anger is rising and the violence is bubbling up. And Nero, uh uh-oh, this didn't go well for me. Well, hey, you know who really did it? The Christians. And Nero blames the Christians for the burning of Rome. And so now this angry mob has a very real source or a very real place to direct their fury right in front of them. And so Christians were being forcibly removed from their homes so that Roman citizens could now live in there. Or they were fleeing, fearing for their lives. So when he says the dispersion, this is who he's talking to. He's talking to believers who for their safety have been either forced to leave their home or have been removed by a violent mob from their home and are now scattered throughout the rest of the country because they were wrongly accused and blamed for something they had nothing to do with. I mean, this is persecution. This is hatred. This is unjust suffering. And this is who Peter writes to. So keep that audience in mind as we go through these things. Because when you remember that he's writing to the exiles of the dispersion, and then he starts talking, right? You see here, like he's writing to the exiles. I, I got to imagine that he's going to write a letter about, hey, here's how you plead your case in the legal courts. Here's how you regain what's rightfully yours. Here's how amends are made for you, right? Like, here is what you do to make things right. Here's how you get restitution. Here's how we right the imbalances of this, the wrongs of this. He says, no, here's how you live victoriously in the midst of this. Here's how you live without bitterness. Here's how you live without hopelessness in the midst of this. So look for those themes as we continue to go through. And he points out that you do these things by trusting God and looking to the return of Jesus. By maintaining that eternal perspective that we've talked about in so many of our sermons that is absolutely vital for believers to have. That heavenly view, that heavenly mindset. And then the awesome thing that Peter includes, as we'll see as we continue through his letters, the incredible detail that is true about when we live this way in the midst of hostile trials is that we evangelize the hostile world when we do this. And this is the letter that Peter is led by the Holy Spirit to write to the believers. And it's going to be, I'm I'm so excited to unpack this all together. But that's just in verse 1. I mean, that's in like five words of verse 1. This is why it's so much fun to study the Bible. Because you learn these things and you go deeper in your appreciation and understanding. So don't ever gloss over just an introductory sentence to a letter. This is what we learn in verse 1. And then we come to verse 2. And verse 2 is a verse that I, I encourage you to become intimately familiar with. It says, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. This verse addresses every element of the question, why is this happening to me? And this is a real and painful question. This is a hard question that weighs on us. This is a question that sows seeds of doubt. This is a question that sows seeds of depression and anxiety and panic and fear. Because what's behind that question What I've frequently found is behind the question of why is this happening to me 
is a whisper from the enemy, well, it's because God's forgotten about you. It's because God has abandoned you. It's because God's not really in control like you think he is. So when we ask this question, why is this happening to me? There's that fear behind it of every other relationship in my life has abandoned me. My parents abandoned me as kids. My friends have rejected me as an adult. God, are, are you doing the same? Is this happening to me because you no longer care about me? Because you're too busy to pay attention to me? This verse addresses those lies and those fears. Then there's the question of, okay, well, practically, why is this happening to me? I just want to understand, right? We hate the unknown. We hate not being able to wrap our minds around things and comprehend a situation. The fear of the unknown is crippling. So we're looking at a situation and we're saying, why is this happening? Just help me understand. This verse answers that. And it addresses that, which we'll look at. And then there's also the very real question of, okay, well, what do I do? Right? Like, okay, I might have an intellectual understanding. I might be able to wrap my head around why this is happening to me, but what do I do? What do I do when I'm in a job where my boss doesn't respect me and treats me terribly and I don't like my coworkers and I feel like I'm wasting my time every day? What do I do when I get physically sick at the thought of going into work? I can't take one more commute, one more day there. What do I do? What do I do when my kids want nothing to do with me? What do I do when my siblings want nothing to do with me? What do I do when I'm in this situation that is nothing but painful? Lord, how do I respond? This verse addresses that. It is such a gift of a verse to us because it deals with this question that can weigh so heavily on us. So I just want to look through and I want to answer those questions using Scripture, using God's Word. And the first thing we see, the first phrase there, according to the foreknowledge of God. And so we're going to look at the will of God. And we have to understand a distinction between his sovereign will and his moral will. Because we're tempted when we're in a situation to say, wait a minute, God allowed that? This is what God is allowing to happen to me? And that's when the enemy starts to whisper, see, he's not as good and as loving as you think. He's not as in control as you think. Because this is a bad situation. Child abuse, poverty, domestic abuse, assault. These are bad situations. Are, are you really telling me that a good God wants that to happen? That's why we have to understand His sovereign will and His moral will. And the first thing we see is God's sovereign will. In this, John Piper, I love John Piper's description of this. He says, God's purpose that is never frustrated in any way. As he expands upon it, he talks about it's never thwarted, it's never, it's never rerouted. Like, you cannot, nothing in this world can change God's purpose, his sovereign will. This is what he decrees to happen. Daniel 4, 34 and 35, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? Psalm 115.3, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. 
And we could spend, honestly, an entire Sunday just looking at all of the biblical evidence that what God sets out to do, he does, and nobody or nothing can get in his way. This is God's sovereign will. And then you have God's moral will. And these are his moral standards and desires that we violate in our sin. Consider these verses. 1 John 2.17, for the men, you should be familiar with this from our study. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The implication and the understanding there is that there are those who do the will of God, but there are those who choose not to, who choose not to do the will of God. 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. What do we know to be true? That there are people who will perish because they will refuse to repent. And so this is where you see God's moral will. Where His moral will is that all should repent, that all should know Jesus as Lord. But in our sin, we violate that moral will. You see, His moral will, that He desires that we should do His will, that we should live by His standards. But in our sin, we violate that moral will. And so we have to understand God's sovereign will and His moral will when we consider this phrase according to the foreknowledge of God. Because it raises the question of God's sovereignty. And look, believers, God is either sovereign entirely or not at all. So you have to figure out what you believe and if your life backs that up. Because we can't say things like, well, God is sovereign Monday through Wednesday. And then Thursday and Friday, not so much. God is sovereign over my finances. God is sovereign over my job. God's just not sovereign over my health. God, God is either sovereign over everything or we've decided that he's sovereign over nothing. And so for believers, we have the joyful assurance, the blessed hope, the guarantee, the certainty, the knowledge that God is sovereign over everything. And so if you're here and you're struggling with that, let this be a reminder that according to the foreknowledge of God, the dispersion, you who are going through this according to the foreknowledge of God, His sovereignty is not changed by whatever situation you find yourselves in. And if you're here, if you're joining us online and you don't believe in God, you don't believe in Jesus as Lord, and you're wrestling with this painful question of why am I going through this? Does nobody care? Please hear me, rest assured. No, come talk to me afterwards. The Lord is still sovereign. And He knows and He cares. But we'll see, we'll start to address the why as we continue in this. Because what we see as we summarize these two wills, that while things may happen in contrast to God's moral will, nothing out happens outside of His sovereign will. God is always in control. And we see this. Romans 8, 28-30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. And then we see Philippians 1, 27 to 30. 
Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. We're reminded that God is sovereign over our salvation. God is sovereign over the good. And then what's it say? It says, you have been granted not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. God is sovereign over the bad. God is sovereign over the hard. God is sovereign over the painful. God is sovereign over the difficult. Job says to his wife, Should we accept just the good from God and not only the bad? Is it fair to think, hey, I want the one but not the other? I get to have a say in this? No, Scripture is a beautiful reminder throughout from Genesis to Revelation of God's sovereignty. And Peter reminds the exiles of this. He says, hey, I know you're going through trials. I know you're going through persecution. I know it's unfair. I know it's not right. God's sovereignty has not changed. And that is what we'll see again and again throughout this letter as he talks about victory. Because it's victory rooted in God's sovereignty. It's victory founded in Christ's death and resurrection. It's a certainty. The enemy can't do a thing about that. This is God. This is his sovereign power. He has not forgotten you. He has not overlooked you. He is in control. Okay, well then why is this happening? If he's in control, why am I going through this painful thing? Why am I going through this unfair thing? Why am I going through this wrong thing? What's the next thing we see? In the sanctification of the Spirit. God is in control always. His will happens. What do we see that his will is for believers? 1 Thessalonians 4.3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Sanctification, a word we've defined before, I'll remind us all. This is our holiness. This is as we become more like Jesus. This is our growing holiness, what makes us more conformed to the image of Christ. Did you catch when we read in Romans earlier, Romans 8.29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So why is this happening? For your holiness. So that you have the opportunity to grow in conformity to Jesus. To be more like Him. This is a key ministry of the Holy Spirit for believers. We have to understand Trinitarian theology. I mean, if nothing else indicates the significance of the Trinity, consider that Jesus in his final conversation with the disciples in the upper room, look at how many, read John 14, 15, 16, and 17, and look at how often Jesus talked about the Holy Spirit. He is not an it. He is not some nebulous force. He is God, and he has a ministry for our lives, and sanctification is a key component of that ministry. 
We have to understand this. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. 1 Corinthians 6.11 And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled by the Spirit. So as we're asking that question, why is this happening to me? For your holiness. For you to be more like Jesus. For you to surrender. For you to learn to walk in step with the Spirit. This is Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8 that Paul spends so much talking about. And so the question we have to ask ourselves as believers is, do I have the right tone of voice? And what I mean by the right tone of voice is, there's a healthy way to ask the question, why is this happening to me? And there's an unhealthy way to ask the, that question. Why is this happening to me? I don't deserve this. The rest of the world does, but not me. Or, okay, why, why is this happening to me? Why am I in a job where I can't, I can't get along with my boss? He got the position from nepotism. He doesn't deserve it. I should be in that position. He doesn't know what he's doing, so I'm wasting my... I mean, why am I here? Man, maybe, maybe I'm in this job to evangelize my coworkers. Maybe I'm in this job to learn patience. Maybe I'm in this job to learn humility. Why did I lose my job? Maybe I lost my job to learn greater dependence on the Lord. Why did the, te the test diagnosis come back, you know, positive? We prayed. Why, why did this test diagnosis not go better for us? Why are the doctor's results and phone calls not better? Maybe to learn reliance. Maybe to learn humility. Maybe to learn peace in the midst of suffering. We have to learn how to change the tone of our voice so that as we ask this question, why is this happening to me? We ask it from the perspective of, oh, because God wants me to be holier. So I'm asking this question of why is this happening to me, knowing that God is sovereign and in his sovereignty he desires my holiness. So in his sovereignty he has placed me in a situation where I can grow in that holiness. This answers the second element of that question, why is this happening to me? For your sanctification, for my sanctification. And believers, if we claim I want to be more like Jesus, we don't get to dictate what those terms look like. God, make me more like Jesus, but here's how I want you to do it. Here's how you're going to do it. It's no, God, I want to be more like Jesus. Do what you need to to make that happen. Our sanctification, it's a beautiful thing. It's a privilege. What a joy that we have these opportunities to grow in this. Romans 8, 4 through 6 sums it all up. Romans 8, starting in verse 4, or actually starting in verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life 
and peace. Ask yourself a hard question. If you are not inclined to peace in difficult situations, if you look at the stresses of this world, if you look at your life and peace is lacking from it, if you would say, I am not at peace, is your mind set on the Spirit? I take God at His word seriously, and I believe Him when He says that, hey, Sam, if you set your mind on the Spirit, that will be life and peace. So if my mind is not at peace, I can tell you the problem does not lie with God. The problem does not lie with His promises. The problem does not lie with His power. The problem lies with what I have set my mind on. Why is this happening? My sanctification. That's a privilege. That's a good thing. Doesn't make it any easier. I mean, it does. It does knowing that God is sovereign. It doesn't make the pain automatically go away. I'm not trying to belittle the, the trauma of abuse, the fear of losing a job, the panic of a bad phone call from the doctor. Please, I, I am not belittling any of that, but I'm telling you that in that, God is still sovereign and you are there for your holiness. And that, to me, is a great reassurance and comfort knowing that. And then the final aspect of that, okay, well then what do I do? What do I do in this situation? What do I do when the call is bad? What do I do when the job is lost? What do I do when the job is bad? What do I do when the family relationships are crumbling? What do I do in this situation? You obey. What's the last thing we see in that? According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Holy Spirit for the obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. Believers, obedience isn't optional. It's not a, hey, if your day isn't too busy. This is what we've been called to. Ephesians 2.10, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I mean, it's that simple. God created good works for you to walk in them as a follower of Jesus. So whatever situation we're in, honestly, the answer is the same. Obey Christ. So then the question becomes, okay, well, do I, do know, do I know the commands of Christ? What was the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. The Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, proclaiming all that I have taught you. James 1.22, my favorite verse, and the verse that also challenges me the most. Do not just be hearers of the word and so deceive yourselves. Be doers. Whatever situation you're in, I can tell you, you're meant to respond in obedience to Christ. And then it talks about for the sprinkling of his blood. And we participated in communion this morning. And so you see that phrase, for the sprinkling of his blood. I'm in this situation for the sprinkling of his blood. Why is that included in the New Testament? Why is he talking about communion? I'm meant to participate in communion in a bad situation? Well, let's look at Scripture. Let's go back to Exodus. Let's see. Let's understand this. This is fun. You gotta wait till you see this connection. If you've, if you've never seen this before, this was, this was awesome. This is Exodus 24, starting in verse 4. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. 
He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. This would have been immensely important to the people when they heard this for the sprinkling of the blood. This was a reminder. This was a very real, powerful reminder of the covenant with God of what He has promised, but also of what His people have promised to Him. What did it say? He read the words of the book of the covenant, and then all the people responded and said, yes, we will be in obedience. This is our aspect of the covenant. As we enter into this covenant relationship with You, Lord, we offer You our obedience. And Moses sprinkled them with the blood of the covenant and said, let this be a reminder So then what do we see in the New Testament? Luke 22.20, And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Ephesians 1.7, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. So take heart. When you're in a hard situation, when you're in a trial, when you're suffering... Be reminded that Christ's blood has redeemed you from this. That suffering is not eternal. That pain is not forever. That grief is not our inheritance. Be reminded of the blood of Christ that our inheritance that we'll look at next week in the very next part of 1 Peter 1. But our inheritance is an imperishable, undefilable eternal kingdom. So be encouraged by this, but then also be reminded that you have entered into a covenant with Jesus, that you have said, I will obey you as Lord. This is what I declare. Be reminded of this by the blood of the covenant. Hebrews 9.14 How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience? Be encouraged. And then what's the second part there? Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Be reminded that you have promised God something. That you have said, Lord, I give you my life. You are Lord, kurios. You are the commanding officer. I get my marching orders from you. This is why those details are important and so much fun to look at. Because we see that this has been God's plan of redemption and atonement from the beginning. He didn't have to scramble. He didn't have to readjust. He didn't have to you know, think on the fly. Going all the way back to Exodus, you see that the Lord has been prepping His people for the redemptive work of Jesus. 
And now we get to look at all of Scripture as a narrative and see this together. It's beautiful to behold and study. And all of this is packed into one verse of this letter. And so to put it all together, to recap, when you look then at his conclusion, right, he says, okay, to the elect exiles of the dispersion according to the foreknowledge of God and sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus and purification or sprinkling with his blood, what does he say? He says, may your situation be immediately resolved. May you be vindicated. May the rest of the world see that you're the good guy in this and they're the bad guy. And may everybody side with you. May you have the sympathy of everyone. May you be immediately removed from the difficulty. No, he doesn't say any of that. He says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for the sprinkling with the blood of Jesus, may grace and peace be multiplied. This is the privilege of the believer. This is the victory for the believer in trials. That grace and peace are not reserved for our life when it is free of difficulty, but that grace and peace have been given to us in abundance, in fullness, in perfection, in the midst of trials. What a joy! What an inheritance! What an encouragement! And this is how Peter opens the letter. And so take heart. Whatever situation you're in, it may indeed be painful. It may indeed be miserable. But it is not meaningless. It is not pointless. It is according to God's sovereign will for your sanctification. And you have victory in Jesus. It's a beautiful thing to keep this in mind, to set our minds on when we consider the trials of this world. This is what Peter writes to a people facing very real persecution and trials. And so this week, as we consider these lessons, I want us to all read, we're all going to read Exodus 24, we're going to read Leviticus 16, we're going to read Isaiah 53 and 54, and then we're going to read Hebrews 9. And you're going to see in these five chapters, oh man, it is the coolest arc of foreshadowing, prophecy, and then fulfillment in Jesus throughout Scripture. It's, it's so much fun. You guys are going to love these five chapters. I'm excited for us to read them this week. And then the do, the apply. Consider these three truths. The foreknowledge of God, God's sovereignty, sanctification of the Holy Spirit, my pursuit of holiness, my ownership of my pursuit of holiness. For obedience to Jesus, the sprinkling with his blood. Look back at a past trial you've come through and ask yourself, okay, now that I'm on the back end of it, now that I can look back, how did I see that God was sovereign? How did he use it to grow me in holiness? Did I respond in obedience? And when we look back at our life, we can either see, okay, yeah, wow, this really was how God was sovereign. And now you have that testimony that helps you in the future. But we can also see, man, this is where I didn't do so well. That's where I did do well. That's how God used it. So use these three truths of verse 2 to look back at a trial in your life. Or if you're in the midst of a trial, evaluate it. Okay, where am I still seeing God's sovereignty? Am I struggling with that? Maybe I'm struggling with that. So then the prayer ideas, which is directly related to this review and assessment of our life, the prayer is simple. Lord, 
thank you for your sovereignty because I see it in the past. Lord, I admit I'm forgetting your sovereignty in the present. Would you remind me of it? Lord, thank you for how you use this past trial to make me holier. Lord, show me how you're trying to make me holier in this present trial. Lord, forgive me for my disobedience, or praise God, Lord, that you empowered me for obedience. Help me to do the same now. We have to learn to assess our lives based on Scripture and then conform our lives to the standard of Scripture, not expect it to conform to us. And then the connect, reach out to one another. Just ask, how you doing? You going through a trial? Let's pray. Maybe I can give you testimony where I will say, look, I will testify to God's sovereignty. This is how he brought me through a similar situation. This is how he brought me through a difficult situation. And I'm not belittling the situation you're in. I want to pray with you as a brother or sister in Christ. But let's use that to connect with one another and take the koinonia different, or deeper. These letters are incredible. Hopefully you see just by the greeting, the richness that God has packed into them. I really am excited to begin this series together, but please let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your sovereignty, God. We are so grateful that it doesn't rest on our shoulders. None of us have that within us. We don't even come pathetically close to your sovereignty. You are above all, and we praise you for that. Lord, if there are those of us here today who have forgotten that, who are struggling to remember that, would you remind us, Lord? Would you bolster failing hearts? Would you strengthen weak hearts, grieving hearts, hurting hearts? Lord, remind us of your sovereignty. Show us how you're desiring to make us holier, and thank you that that is your heart for us that you look at where we are and you love us, but then you say, okay, I'm going to make you holier. I'm going to make you more like Jesus. Thank you for that gift. Teach us to walk in that. Teach us to surrender to that. Teach us to desire that. And Lord, we thank you for the blood of Jesus that did what we could not do, that paid our penalty, that satisfied your wrath, and that did it perfectly. Remind us of the precious blood of the new covenant and remind us that we have offered ourselves to you in that. Thank you for who you are, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Everyone, Pastor Sam here. Thanks for joining us for a Sunday sermon. If you're interested in more of the sermons from this series or some of our past sermon series that we've done, you can find them at discovercommunity.org under the sermon file. Uh, otherwise, you can subscribe to this channel to make sure you stay up to date on all our content. Thanks for joining us.